and welcome to the alternate timeline. So first, as always, we're going to do stuff that I cut from the episode, and then we will talk a little bit about some behind-the-scenes stuff and some odds and ends and other random stuff. So first, um, a few little fun facts that didn't make the cut on the final episode. Um, let's start with Andreas Hein. So you heard um, Andreas talking about the engineering questions of space mining and the fact that um, it may or may not work. Um, and I found him by looking up just sort of people who've written about the engineering questions, and he actually has some other really interesting sounding papers, including one called, quote, the cathedral and the starship learning from the middle ages for future long duration projects. It's basically all about sort of like, how do you design a very large spacecraft for like, you know, in the classic sci-fi way of sending a whole group of people out into space. Um, I will link to that in the show notes. Um, another fun fact related to asteroids, Julia found this one from the European Space Agency. Um, apparently, an increasing number of asteroids are doubles, which basically means that they are two similarly sized asteroids that have drifted together gently and now orbit each other. And they're sometimes even touching as they share a path around the sun, which is very cute. Um, I feel like that's like a good idea for an animated series of just like two star-crossed asteroids who find each other in space. Um, um, another quick fact, um, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were hammering out the Outer Space Treaty, the Soviets actually did want to explicitly ban private companies from operating in space. Uh, the U.S. rejected that idea, which probably will not surprise you. Um, so if that were if that had happened, today's conversations about things like SpaceX and Starlink would be very different. Um, Unrelated, sort of related, um, there is a new review of Starlink in On the Verge, uh, at The Verge, by Nilai, who is the editor-in-chief of The Verge, um, and he reviewed Starlink, and uh, it's worth a read to sort of see how Starlink works. We've talked about it before on the show, um, and uh, it's an interesting tech review that sort of doubles as kind of criticism of the whole premise of Starlink and kind of why it exists. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, so a couple little longer things that we um, didn't get to on this episode. So um, for this episode, we decided to focus kind of mostly on asteroids, a little bit more than um, like planetary or lunar mining. Um, so instead of talking about Mars or, or the moon or other moons in the system, um, we sort of stuck with asteroids. But if you are talking about, say, for example, the moon, um, Earth's moon, there is actually another big question that you might have to answer about mining. So um, for the purposes of our episode, Episode, we kind of assumed that all parts of an asteroid would be equally valuable to mine. Um, I think it's probably obvious that that won't be true in reality. Some are going to be better than others. Some regions of certain asteroids might be more or less valuable. And that is very much true of the moon as well. You know, on the moon where you've got, uh, and this is going to refer to another, um, you know, Elvis Milligan and Alana Kralikowski. Uh, uh, sorry, Karlikowski um, is a co-author on a, a very recent paper about lunar resources and how, you know, things are kind of concentrated at the poles. That's where you're going to get your solar power because you've got these peaks of eternal light where there's high illumination conditions. You've got the crater rims where uh, you've got the, uh, sorry, crater uh, basins, the permanently shadowed regions uh, where we know there's some frozen water ice. Peaks of eternal light. Yes, great band name. And in fact, I did a little bit of Googling to see if there was a band called Peaks of Eternal Light, and I couldn't find one, but I did find one album called Peaks of Eternal Light by the band Pyre of Descent. Now, you might assume, as I did, that Pyre of Descent would be a heavy metal band. Uh, they're actually not. They are more kind of like ethereal and soundscape-y. So here is how they describe the album on Bandcamp. Quote, 
hypnotic mellow arpeggios, beautiful solos, rough as well as melancholic vocals, and minimalist yet effective drumming is what this EP is made up of. I actually do like it. I've been listening to it, and I will link to it in the show notes for this episode in case you want to pick up that album. Um, The peaks of eternal light on the moon make up about one square kilometer of the lunar surface, approximately. Um, And so if a bunch of countries and private companies all want to go to the moon and take advantage of the resources there, they might all be fighting over a very small patch of land. And this is probably true of all moons to some extent. You know, so those are the places the scientists want to go to, the the, the commercial developers want to go to, and um, if one of the things you want to study is, you know, the sort of very tenuous lunar atmosphere, then any activity is going to be kicking up regolith and, and, and confounding your studies, and um, we, we can't do everything we want to do in space, I, I think is, is something that uh, not enough folks have realized. Uh, even if we could afford to do all the things we want to do, there are conflicts. Um, there are incompatible um, things. They they make a great point about how all these people trying to get investments, basically for their their space mining companies, have quantified how how many precious minerals there are on asteroids and how many different things you want to you, you could mine on the moon. Um, but they neglect to mention the fact that these are all really concentrated and that, uh, as as Jim was saying, there's there's areas of conflict even between science and and mining uh, in the same spots. This kind of relates to Erica's point that we did get to on the episode, which is that despite what we might like to think, uh, the resources in space are not unlimited, um, and we are going to have to figure out how to manage them. Conflict is going to arise between industry and science, between nations and private companies, and we don't really know right now how to settle those disputes. Speaking of disputes, let's talk about Skylab, shall we? Okay, so I mentioned on the episode that whatever happened in 1973 with Skylab is sort of contested, right? Some people call it a strike. Others say that calling it a strike is basically just an urban legend. Um, As far as I understand, and I did a bit of digging on this for the episode, the truth is somewhere in between. So here is what we know for sure. The astronauts in Skylab in 1973 were very unhappy, basically from the beginning. So when they got up to Skylab, the crew before them had left behind kind of a prank or a surprise, and that was three human-sized dummies dressed in flight suits with name tags that matched the three new astronauts. Um, One of those was placed in the waste chute, and it was kind of this like jab. People think it was because um, this was one of the few crews on Skylab, maybe I think the only crew on Skylab that... um, didn't have someone who'd already been up just in space. They were all kind of like rookies, quote, so to say, so to speak. Um, and so they think maybe that was what that was about, but not a great start. Um, although if it was just that, okay, fine, we can set that aside. Um, but things just sort of were bad from the beginning. So the first evening that the crew was up there, all three astronauts were really nauseous and at least one of them puked. Um, protocol at the time was to tell mission control anytime anybody vomited, you have to capture the puke, you got to freeze dry it, you got to bring it back down at the end for analysis. But the astronauts decided not to do that. So they sent the barf bag through the airlock because they thought that if the medics knew that the crew was vomiting, the medics might start influencing the rest of the flight, and they didn't really want that. Um, The problem is it doesn't really work to lie to NASA when NASA is, like, listening in on everything. Um, And the crew sort of, I guess, forgot that the tape recorders were still running. So in the morning, Mission Control read the transcripts about the astronauts basically lying to them, and they were not happy, and the crew was reprimanded, which is actually relatively rare for a crew to get into trouble, like, and actually sort of be actively reprimanded mid-flight. 
Um, then, then we get to the issue of the work, right? Like I mentioned in the episode, it was like wall to wall. One astronaut said, quote, it was almost to the point where you almost had to schedule a time when you could go to the bathroom. It was that tightly scheduled. And pretty quickly they were complaining, right? They were saying stuff to NASA, like we can't do this. So, um, so one of them said, quote, there is no way we can do a professional job. We're pressed bodily from one point of the spacecraft to another with no time for even mental preparation. And that was a complaint he made like literally at the time when they were up there. Um, the men also started to push back sort of more subtly. Uh, they grew beards, which might not sound like that much at the time, but wasn't really a thing that astronauts did. And some people think that might have been kind of like a subtle, like, uh, we're unhappy kind of message. Um, and then that brings us to kind of the question of whether the radio shutoff was on purpose or not. So there is a ton of debate about this online. Some people say that calling this a strike is a total myth. Um I think that's probably not fair to say. It has definitely been overblown for sure. Um, Edward Gibson, one of the three men that was up there, has said that there was absolutely no plan to shut off the radio contact, that it was like a mistake. But Gerald Carr, who was also up there, has said that they kind of told NASA they were going to do it. So there's kind of conflicting reports about this. Um and two days after the break, the astronauts did have a negotiation session with NASA outlining, like, here's what we need to do. This is what we want. You know, kind of like a traditional negotiation session. Um, so when I was working on this episode, I wanted to make sure I got this right. And I did ask two friends about this, both of whom have interviewed the astronauts of Skylab 4. And I asked them if it would be fair to call this a, like, maybe strike. And they both said that, yeah, that's basically fair. And they kind of said essentially off the record that astronauts, these astronauts, particularly the three guys and NASA, obviously all have kind of some incentive to push back on the idea that the astronauts were unhappy enough to actually strike. Um, and so there's kind of this like interesting song and dance that's going on around kind of like how the story gets told and what is on purpose and what isn't on purpose. Um, and so it's kind of, it's in that murky, complicated sort of like middle ground there. It's kind of what it's fair to say. It's not not a strike, but it's not definitely a strike. It's kind of, I think, the most accurate way to say it. Um, so that's that. One last thing about Skylab. Okay, when it fell out of the sky in 1979, parts of it actually hit Australia. And President Carter was forced to issue kind of this like non-apology apology to Australians. He wrote in the New York Times, quote, I was concerned to learn that fragments of Skylab may have landed in Australia. I am relieved to hear your government's preliminary assessment that no injuries have resulted. Nevertheless, I have instructed the Department of State to be in touch with your government immediately and to offer any assistance that you may need. Um... That was his statement. That's kind of what happened. But one town called Esperance, Australia, was like, that is not enough. We are going to fine you $400 for littering. Um, so this Australian town uh, sent, a sent a fine to the U.S. for $400. Obviously, the U.S. did not pay it. Um, but... Here's the fun part of this. In 2009, the fine was paid, and it was paid by a radio DJ in California. So apparently he had read about this on Wikipedia, and he thought it was kind of funny. And so he decided to collect donations from his listeners and send the $400 over to the town of Esperance, Australia. So our debt has been paid, um, on that front at least, <laughs> from the United States. Uh, I thought that was a very fun story. Okay. That is all of the stuff that we did not get into in this episode. Um, it was a good one. It was a fun one. I enjoyed this episode. Okay, um, behind the scenes stuff. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think, on this podcast, that I have been really underwater with projects and just like wall-to-wall -wall kind of working all the time, kind of like Skylab people. Like I have no time to like eat and 
just do, do things that are human things. Um, and so I've been trying to be more cognizant of that and like find time for myself that isn't work time. Um, and so last week I got very lucky. Um, a couple of friends, uh, managed to snag a camp cabin in steep ravine, which is in, um, near woods up by me in the Bay area. Um, and we just like went out there for a night and it was amazing. Um, I saw a river otter, I saw a bobcat, I saw some deer, I saw a bunch of starfish. It was very cool. Um, I put some pictures of it in the newsletter, um, and it was just like a lovely little getaway. And it is amazing how just like 12 hours away from my desk can make me feel so much better. So I'm very thankful for that. I also repotted a bunch of my plants this weekend, which was long overdue. Some of them were very root bound. So hopefully they are okay. I'm sorry to my plants. Um, hopefully they'll be better and happier with bigger pots that they are in now. And that's really like all I have. I feel bad that I don't have a ton of behind the scenes stuff that I can share with you right now, even though I am working on lots of stuff. I will be able to talk more about some of it soon. It's just kind of like that annoying, boring stage where like I'm doing a ton of work, but I'm not supposed to say that much about it yet. Um, But I am cutting a trailer for one of the things I'm working on, and that should be out at some point, and I'll be able to share it with you. Um, And obviously, you know, y'all will know first on all this stuff when I'm allowed to talk about it. And the last thing is, um, as always, a secret. Uh, And my secret is that I am fully vaccinated. Uh, It's not really a secret, I guess. (laughs) Obviously, I've told a lot of people and I put it in the newsletter and um, I'm very excited about it. So I've been, you know, very excited to talk about about it. It's not super a secret, but um, it is something that's big and that I'm excited about. um, And I feel very lucky to have access to the vaccine And I hope that wherever you are, you have either gotten it already or you get to get it soon. Um, I hope that your kiddos, um, family folks can get it soon. I know that they're changing the rules around kids getting it. So um, I just hope that everyone, everyone gets it and everyone feels a little, a little bit, a little bit safer in the world. Okay. That's all from me this week. You will hear, um, you will hear a new, uh, bonus podcast soon. Um, and we'll be back in your ears with a future episode on the 25th. Okay. Bye.